1: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another episode of To Be Discussed with Cup and Gur. My name is Callum Gur, and I'll be joined by my co host and political opposite, George Cup.
0: Hello everyone, this evening Callum and I will prove to you that you can have a impassioned debates whilst holding vastly different opinions without falling out at the end of the night. So this evening we will be discussing was internal shadow cabinet disloyalty the reason Labour didn't win the last election? In any future lockdown what should be the last thing to close down? And lastly will you go abroad in 2020? With each of these discussions being accompanied by polls which you have the chance to vote on at wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen
1: and these discussions will be open until the end of the song break between each topic but first last week we asked you guys to send in your opinions on the question if you're a leader of a political party what would be your main policy and we've had some really fascinating responses as ever and the first one's in from lucy lucy says this might be a bit biased But if I was a leader of a political party, I would focus much more on the needs of young people. I know this wouldn't get me elected, probably, but even so, this is what I believe in. I would reduce taxes for under 25s to help give young people a leg up and also make it easier to get on the property ladder. I think we have it so hard nowadays, much harder than our parents did. And I would definitely vote for a political party that made it easier for us to get jobs, save up money and move out. I think all of the government policies previously to make life easier for young people have been a bit half-hearted and too complicated. Straightforward, simple policies to make young people's lives easier would be good. George, what do you, what do you make of Lucy's opinion now?
0: It's definitely uh, an interesting one. And I think often when any political party comes into power, they do um kind of forget the younger generations and, and what policies may be attractive towards them um and also how to how to help younger generations um i i can see the benefit of uh, reducing taxes for younger people um but obviously at the end of the day if you're going to if young people comes into a job then normally it's on a lower wage which means that then you won't be paying as much tax um and surely in my opinion if you're um having a job and you you're you're 18 or 19 um and you're earning over eighty thousand pounds i think surely you are you should be entitled to pay as much tax as anyone else um i also uh think that the the housing system to, to, to get people on the housing ladder yes there are problems with it but i do think that the help to buy scheme that was brought in by the government did help people onto the housing ladder um and it is something that is, is, is beneficial for, for younger people. Um, but I do still think, um, in agreement here that there is definitely, um, some room for improvement, um, regarding housing. There definitely should be some encouragement more so, um, to ensure that younger people can get onto the housing ladder and, and to help them get the, the deposits and, I don't know, drive down house prices for first time buyers. Um, But I think you make a very important point there by saying for younger people, it needs to be straightforward, simple policies, Um, because I I think, unfortunately, politics can seem like a very daunting and confusing world um, if you do look thoroughly into policies that are coming out and everything. And um, by making things simple, straightforward um, and to the point, I definitely think that would encourage more people to get involved in politics and also to, to vote for a certain party. Um, so I, I think that is something that should be uh, taken on by by any party. What do you think, Alan?
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, obviously, Lucy, you're probably right. If you're focusing too much on young people, you might well end up not getting elected. But presuming that you did, I mean, I think it, it is a um, a good focus to have. Uh, and i think um flagging up the the housing crisis is obviously something that we we've said many many times on the show about um how important it is to solve it solve that um and i, I mean um, i think help to buy does help george but i, I mean i don't think it goes anywhere near far enough to to be quite frank um in in kind of solving this crisis i mean um I think still the majority of younger people who end up getting a house tend to be able to get parent support not obviously not obviously every person but I think a, a, a hell of a lot of people um that that is the case for um still even nowadays and and so that that shows that um it's still very much a, a kind of class-based thing that the housing crisis um I think in terms of um, Lucy's idea for reducing taxes um, for under twenty-five, I think that's a very interesting one. Um, I, I mean, I, I think in, in principle it's probably a, a a good policy idea to have. It's it's certainly simple and straightforward, like like Lucy says, policy should be. Uh, I think my issue would be if we're talking about an income tax break for under 25s, the majority of under 25s up until maybe the age of 21, 22, aren't actually tending to earn very much that would get taxed. Um, I I mean, obviously, majority of 18 to 21 year olds would probably be in university. So therefore, they're not going to be earning anything other than maybe if they have a a part-time job along with their studies. Um, and so therefore, a kind of tax break's probably not on the whole gonna be greatly beneficial anyway um and and even so, then it's only really quite a short period four years to have any kind of tax break to build up enough money to to be able to save up for a deposit for a house um so i, I think the kind of idea is a good one um but presuming that it's talking about an income tax break right. I think that it wouldn't necessarily have the, the the positive impact on which I think Lucy's intentions are are to have. Um, I'm not sure whether or not possibly just spitballing, but whether the an income tax break should last longer, maybe up until you're 27, 30, something like that, um, because that gives you a much longer time to build up money. Um, Or whether or not, I mean, maybe Lucy does mean a slightly different kind of tax break uh, and not talking about income tax.
0: Um, Our next opinion comes in from Aidan and they say, I know this has been very on trend during the pandemic. But genuinely, I would abolish the police and rethink the whole justice system if I was the leader of a political party. Make no mistake, the police do not keep crime rates down. The police show up after a crime has been committed and clean up the mess. I would replace the police with psychiatrists, more investigators and a better first response system. So instead of people in trouble being faced with big men with batons, they were faced with People who could de escalate the situation and actually help them as people. The justice system in this country needs huge reform as well because it just doesn't work. I think the fact that a lot of crime happens every day in this country, despite the system we have, shows that it is not effective. Well, Callum, a very out there opinion. What what do you think on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the great things about this segment. We do get some really varied opinions come in, and I think it's really interesting. I think. The general idea of having maybe more of a kind of psychological approach to, um, to policing and having a kind of better first response system um, is certainly one that, that we could look into. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't personally support the idea of abolishing the police completely Um, and I I probably would actually take issue and I mean George studied for um, policing so I'm sure he'll tell us a a bit more in a minute but uh, for me I don't think that actually the majority of policing is carried out with um, big men with batons anyway I mean I think obviously we have a lot of police community support officers nowadays um, which arguably don't actually have enough power but There's certainly, I think in recent years, there's been a tendency to try and focus more on what's known as community policing. And even in terms of batons, I do know for sure that um, that that is a kind of um, public unrest um, uh, containment tool or measure that isn't just completely accessible to the police to use straight away in a kind of gung-ho fashion. Um, And and there obviously has to be a very clear reason for for that kind of thing to happen. Um, And and so I think whilst I agree with the kind of broad point point in terms of maybe reforming the police, for me personally, I don't think that some of maybe the solutions prescribed here would actually be uh, effective. What do you think, George?
0: It is a definitely a very interesting point of view to have, Aidan. And, and I would um, love to see the, the research and, and the, this, the research that you've done in terms of finding actual evidence to, to prove that the system that we have right now doesn't overly work in reducing crime. Um, I, I think that by saying that because Because we have crime that happen every single day proves that the the system that we have is is flawed. I think doesn't really make sense. I mean, no matter how strict a crime you're going to have, whether it was a military kind of service, you're still going to have crime happen. Um, And and I think that yes, there are. Sorry, Callum.
1: No, I was just agreeing with what you're saying, George.
0: All right. Um, And I think that he absolutely we do need those kind of psychiatrists to to be there to to help that um, level of mental health because we have obviously seen a a rise in mental health and unfortunately the police are called quite often to those cases and if we had that that system in place to ensure that those needed the help were already there then absolutely i would agree with that but um at the same time the battens this this idea of police going in with batons is just not true um it is a last resort for anything and, and you will often see that even if riots go about you would see uniform uh, uniformed police officers first go in to try and calm the situation down and then they would slowly escalate that into wearing their riot helmets and then full-on riot gear if it still wasn't going the right way um and and there are police uh, and officers as well, that so if there was something going on, they would go in, try and calm the situation down, try and work with whatever's happening. Um- and make sure that people were feeling as if they were being listened to by the police so the police could then take control of the situation and try and calm it down. Um, I, I think the justice system is something that does need to be looked at absolutely um, but in my opinion I don't actually agree that Aidan if you were to become a leader of a party and, and bring in these kind of measures I don't particularly think you would get much um, many votes because I think our police is, is very much loved in this country um, and a lot of people do have great respect for the the, the police force that uh, we have in this country.
1: Wow, very politician y response, that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and next uh, opinion is from Kathleen. Uh, Kathleen says, I think our country needs to be rebalanced, and that's what I would aim to do if I was the leader of a political party. Pay needs to be rebalanced. We need to reduce the pay of entertainers like footballers and increase the pay of critical workers such as doctors and nurses, teachers, carers, etc. We also need to reprioritise how our country is set up. We should have more hospitals, not making NHS cuts. We need to invest in things that actually matter, not new stadiums and arenas. This pandemic has shown us what really is important and who is there for us at the end of the day. It's the doctors, not the footballers, who need to be paid a bonus for their work. Uh, George, what would you make it up?
0: I, 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 Kathleen, I, I, I do. Absolutely agree with what you're saying. And, and I think that the, I, I don't think anyone would disagree that, that footballers are, are often paid too much when you have people that are saving people's lives um, that are on what they are on. But unfortunately, the, the issue that we have is that we live in a country that doesn't control what footballers are paid. Um, it is a free market. And unfortunately, that means that pl- um, Footballers are allowed to be paid whatever um, is afforded by the company that employs them or the team that employs them. Um, And obviously the, the doctors and the NHS are is run by the government, and that means that there is a certain budget that the government can pay out of um, and of course there are certain ways and, and systems and taxes that can be brought in to ensure that those doctors and nurses and healthcare care workers um, are given a pay rise and to ensure that the NHS is also well funded but I think it's very hard to compare um, football and salary against doctors salaries and nurses salaries when they are two different and excuse the pun but ball games um, because it is it's it's different ways of being paid. One is state-owned and the other is not. And, and that's the, I suppose you could argue, a disadvantage of having a free market in terms of businesses and, and how they are they pay their employees. Callum, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, just very quickly, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, George. Obviously, it is a very different thing. And I think whilst I agree with the priority of um, paying doctors more and, and having um not having nhs cuts and things like that i i don't necessarily think focusing on footballers is is necessary the the right approach and 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 the reason is although i completely agree a lot of footballers are paid far too much for what they do we we should also think about the fact that uh f- footballers aren't <laughs> They're not born into the the position of being paid this much. Quite often, footballers come from a very working-class background. And actually, it's one of the few routes for a lot of young men, I think. And obviously, there's obviously now women's football is is growing massively as well. But it's a a route for people from a working-class background to get wealthy. Um, and, And I think that sometimes... That we focus so much on how much footballers are getting paid without seeing how much businessmen who uh, are literally just the son of or the daughter of someone who built up that business and how much they end up getting paid. For me, I think sometimes we just we focus so much on footballers and I think it's maybe slightly a class issue as well in terms of being above their station right then i remember we'll be announcing what the question would be for you to send in your opinion at the end of tonight's show so make sure you're ready for that for the chance to be featured in this segment of next week's show and we'll be back very soon
0: Hello and welcome back to To Be Discussed. So let's move on to our second discussion of this evening. And we're asking, was internal shadow cabinet disloyalty the reason Labour didn't win the last election? So cast your mind back to 2019 in November when a general election was coming about. I know it seems absolutely ages ago after everything that we have been through recently, but... It was a time where Labour were trying to get rid of a Conservative government and ensure that they maintained and got a majority in the Houses of Parliament. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. There were many reasons possibly to blame, from Brexit to people not liking Jeremy Corbyn. But one of the ones that isn't talked about as often is the disloyalty that was possibly shown within the shadow cabinet. For example, Tom Watson, the the shadow sorry the deputy leader of the Labour Party was having and was in discussions with the then leader of the Liberal Democrats Joe Swinson possibly standing for the Liberal Democrats and also having many discussions about how Labour should align themselves with the Liberal Democrats and join in the fight to stop Brexit there were many disagreements within the shadow cabinet um, and it is on record that Labour didn't like Tom Watson, and did try to um, oust him to ensure that Jeremy Corbyn had enough support within his own shadow cabinet. But, Callum, is this just another reason in the, in the book of why Labour didn't win the last election? Or do you think this is actually one of the main headlines as to why they didn't win it?
1: Um, I think that it's it, I wouldn't say it's one of the main reasons why. They didn't win the last election. But I would say it's one of the symptoms of the main reason they didn't, which was Corbyn, to be quite frank, uh, and the kind of socialism which he seemed to represent and the direction of travel that he seemed to take the Labour Party. And I think that the reason why we saw a fair bit, I think, more early on in Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, to be quite honest. But we saw a fair bit of internal shadow cabinet disloyalty, was because of the parliamentary party's reaction against that, and then a the desire to try and basically get rid of Corbyn as leader, so that they could install someone who they argued would be more electable. Um, and to be honest, I mean, in a sense, it it did, I suppose, end up working. Um, although in many ways you could argue that Corbyn to a certain extent went when he wanted to go Um, although I suppose he probably would have wanted to have been Prime Minister before that Um, but, but I would say that actually the reason why I would say in kind of summary to this question the reason I would say no that this isn't the reason they didn't win the last election is okay as I said Early on in Corbyn's leadership, there maybe was shadow cabinet disloyalty and Tom Watson was never exactly um, massively loyal to the Corbyn movement and momentum and things like that. But actually, when you think about it um, towards the end of Corbyn's leadership and going into the 2019 election, actually, the main hitters were very, very loyal to um, Jeremy Corbyn. People like Diane Abbott, who was Shadow Home Secretary, John McDonnell, who was the um, Shadow Chancellor, Keir Starmer even, who was Shadow Brexit Secretary, was very, very loyal um, to Corbyn. Um, And I I think you could probably make a case that the kind of wider parliamentary party were not very loyal um, to uh, Corbyn. But I think by the time of the election, Actually, the shadow cabinet was remarkably in line with what Corbyn wanted to do. Um, and I think that's reflected in the fact that uh, the two main leadership con- ca- uh, contenders, really, um, in the Labour leadership election race, both actually came from that shadow cabinet um, because of the fact that they'd managed to almost whittle it down so much and they'd taken control of the party so much that it ended up being that two people that were broadly favoured by the Corbyn leadership ended up being the main contenders and then obviously Lisa Nandy gave it a go but in the end I I think she came third in the end and obviously she wasn't really part of that shadow cabinet Um, what do you think George? I mean do you you think there was shadow cabinet disloyalty that led to Labour losing?
0: I think in in a weird way it it wasn't the disloyalty that led to them losing it was the 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 loyalty that led to um them losing I, I think that yes we saw tom watson go off and and have discussions elsewhere with with other parties but that was because of of where he stood politically tom watson is is often a very much a kind of I suppose a Tony Blair follower, if you like. He is very much a, a Blairite in a lot of the policies that he does agree with. Um, but I, I personally think that it was just the loyalty within the cabinet that was one of the reasons why they lost the election. As Callum has said, um, they were very much signed up to what Corbyn wanted to do, and they were very much um, all singing from the same uh, hymn sheet. And I think that was very dangerous. Corbyn was able to surround himself with all of those that perce- perceived to 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 love him and to show that they agreed with the policies that he wanted to bring in, and I think that was that was very dangerous because he wasn't getting the real reaction from those of the backbench, from those outside of the membership, and, and actually within the grassroots of the Labour Party, um, and and because of that because he was just surrounding himself by yes men and women it allowed him to to go on this kind of path that not the country didn't actually want Um, and just because he had his shadow cabinet agreeing with him the majority of the time I believe that led him to think that he was doing the right thing and it is what the country wanted and that's why they they went forward with the manifesto they did and the approach they did on Brexit at the the, um, last election and I think that is a big thing as to why they did lose um, lose the last election I mean Callum do you think it is important well firstly do you think that I I'm kind of right in agreeing that they he, Corbyn surround himself too much with yes men and women and, and do you think therefore it is important that when you are a leader of a party that you surround yourself with not just people that agree with what you want to do but also those that will challenge you every step of the way
1: I I, I do agree that he surrounded himself with with kind of yes men as you say and women um, however I would say that it. I think as a leader it, it's kind of natural to to a certain extent you need people that are on the same page as you do believe fundamentally in you as a leader um, and so I think to a certain extent you do need yes men and women in that sense people who are willing to obviously challenge you and, and challenge the policies that, that you want to implement, but not people that you suspect either want their leadership for themselves, or that just don't want you as leader at all. And, and so I can kind of, if you're thinking about it more from Corbyn's perspective, I, I can understand why he ended up um, with a, a cabinet which was much more in line with his policies. And we also have to remember that Obviously, there were anti-Semitism issues and issues over Brexit and things like that, but it was actually the wider shadow cabinet from the different factions in the Labour Party that weren't really pro-Corbyn. They're the ones that left the shadow cabinet. Corbyn didn't sack many from his shadow cabinet. They normally resigned from it. Uh, Lisa Nandy being an example of someone who resigned from the shadow cabinet. Um, and, so, uh, and if you think about it, when Corbyn first became leader... He actually tried to reach out, kind of across the aisle, and get these kind of people to um, from the other factions to to join him. Um, and, and so it was kind of, I think, just a natural thing that it did end up being that he had a lot of yes men around him. Um, one question I did have for you, though, is um, that obviously you, you mentioned that um, there weren't people there to challenge his policies and his policy ideas that he had, but do do you not think actually that that kind of misses the point because the the problem in many ways maybe arguably this is more of a case in 2017 than 2019? But the problem wasn't so much the policies and the manifesto that Labour had. It was actually probably just the messenger. Because if we think about it, cutting down tax loopholes, invested more in the NHS, renationalising even the railways, these are all, the polls seem to suggest broadly popular policies with the electorate. And so it does suggest that actually Corbyn type policies weren't necessarily the problem. It, w- it was, just the person who was delivering that message. I mean, do you think that's right?
0: Um, yeah, I, I absolutely do think it was right. And and, and it is evidence in the fact that um, we have seen that the Conservative Party kind of commit to a very much or when they were running for the, the election, very much a spending kind of manifesto. Um, and even now with the the kind of the way that they want to recover the economy, it is, again, a spending manifesto. Um, and I think that just shows that even if the Conservatives, a, a party that traditionally has, proven to to cut things in especially in the social sector um if they are wanting to spend that just shows that there is an appetite for those kind of policies um even within the conservative voters because i think it does when you have austerity for as long as we did there is that appetite as a country to just say come on we we need that bit of leeway but we need that bit of freedom to be able to spend to be able to invest in our economy and into to um our NHS and and the social sector especially um so yeah I, I think that if we were and this is why I believe it's such a dangerous or the Labour Party will become a very dangerous force in the coming election because now Corbyn has gone I think that Kia will be able to take the policies that Jeremy wanted to implement to the next level because purely of the fact that it's not Jeremy Corbyn that will be trying to sell them I mean do you agree with that as well
1: Yeah, I think Labour are in a much healthier position now than what they were. I mean, they've got a massive mountain to climb, to be fair. Um, But I I definitely think as well that the problem for Labour last election in so many ways was Corbyn himself. Um, And Mm -hmm. rightly or wrongly, I think he appeared scary to the electorate or the vast majority of the electorate, Um, obviously with his links to to anti-Semitism and and anti-Semitic tropes, also... I think he he seemed a very scary prospect in terms of foreign policy, if we look at his response to the things like the Salisbury attacks and also his approach to the economy. He just, he always seemed as a person far too radical, I I think, um for, for the country. Uh, and, and so I think that, you know, that's probably, for me, the reason why Labour lost the last election was Corbyn himself um, and that's not necessarily a fair thing, but it's just the way in which he was perceived by the public.
0: Yeah. And how do you think this poll's going to go?
1: Um, I think that I actually think that most people are going to say yes, that it was internal shadow cabinet disloyalty. I'm going to say 55 percent. What about you? I'm going to say 40 percent for yes. But... As always, there is only one
0: way to find out, and that's for you all to go and vote on this question. Was internal shadow cabinet disloyalty the reason Labour didn't win the last election? And you can do that at forward slash listen. And we'll be back after this. Hello and welcome back. So before that break, we asked the question, was internal shadow cabinet disloyalty the reason Labour didn't win the last election? And to find out the results of that poll, please go to our Twitter page. That's at Wiz
1: Right. And time to move on to our third topic of this evening. And we're asking in any future lockdown, what should be the last thing? To close down. So in March 2020, the UK government introduced lockdown measures designed to cut down all non essential travel and prevent the the spread of the (laughs) coronavirus. Uh, Pubs, restaurants, non essential shops, and places of worship were all shut down on the 26th of March, which is when their closures were enforced by law, whereas the schools closed from around the 20th of March. But would that be the same process this time around? The government has suggested that in any local or national lockdown, the schools would now be the final thing to shut down. But is that the right approach? George, in any future lockdown, what do you think should be the last thing to close down out of the following? The schools, the universities, non-essential shops, pubs slash restaurants, places of worship or other? What do you think?
0: Well, for me, um, if we look back at how the lockdown kind of went and, and the processes that, that surrounded it and, and when they first came in, I, I very much actually agree with with the, what the government did in locking down certain things at certain times. I disagree with how quickly they did it. But I think that the approach that they took in, in terms of what they thought was most important to shut down first was correct. Um, for me, I do agree with what the government stance is today is that if there was another lockdown to come in, schools should be the last thing to close down again um, because we have seen the damage or the potential damage that it could do or has done to the students um, that it's affected already during lockdown when schools did shut, when it, the schools were only open for key workers and um, those that have parents or were in the social system. So they were still allowed to go into schools. Um I think that we realized during lockdown how important schools are for um, the, for children and for teenagers, um, because it, it, it is a lifeline for them and it is something that is going to develop their future. And it is wrong of us to to stop the education for those that um, will then be disadvantaged um, against all the other uh, generations or all the other years, purely on the facts that. Um, this pandemic came about and, and if there are enough approaches and enough guidelines and legislation that is brought into place um, if there is a second lockdown um, to ensure that students are kept safe that teachers are kept safe that i personally do not see any reason why schools should be the first thing to shut i as i said that is why i think they should be the last thing to shut because it is so important so important that our children still have an education and therefore have a future when looking forward um i do think that there are absolutely arguments to 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 say that um if we were to look at the, the wider picture of our economy and, and we've seen how how much it, this lockdown has affected our economy. Um, I'm sure there will be those that would definitely argue that the last thing sh- that should be shut down are pubs and restaurants if they can keep to the social distancing measures and ensure that people are sanitizing when they come in and, and so on and so forth. But for me, I think that people's safety and, and, and people aren't unfortunately trusted enough to, to go go into pubs and restaurants and even places of worship and non-essential shops um, when there is a lockdown in place and and to keep those social distancing measures and respect them. Um, So I I think that they should be the first things to go and and schools and universities should definitely be the last things to shut um, because it is essential that they stay open for our kids. What do you think, Adam?
1: Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think schools should be the, the last thing to close down. I think obviously... In terms of universities, it depends upon the course as such, um, because there are certain courses where it's just it's impossible to do it online and to do it virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I think broadly uh, on the courses where it is possible, so more kind of arts based um, degrees, I, I think they they should be closed down fairly early on. Um, because I, I think that it's entirely possible to do a lot of university work um, online, um, which obviously I know there's probably some listeners who are um, just going off to university and, and worried about that prospect. Um, and obviously that is a, a kind of tough thing it would be to take. But I think that realistically that is they, they should be one of the kind of earlier things to, to shut down except those where courses just, it is impossible to, to do them online. Obviously non-essential shops, I, I, I'd say a similar thing. If it's not essential, there's no need for it to be open. Um, pubs and restaurants think it's an interesting one and, but I'd, I'd say it follows the same logic as non-essential shops in many ways because it isn't. Essential and, and also obviously a lot of restaurants manage to pivot very well and very effectively towards becoming more takeaway outlets. Um, and I, I think because they've got that ability to do that, that means that we could close them down without them actually having to shut their doors or, or not providing that service, which they, um, provide. Um, and so I think again, there's no reason they should be the last thing to close down because they can, in many ways, operate, certainly in the case of restaurants, they can operate to a certain extent quite successfully without um, actively having people come in to them. I think places of worship is a really interesting one, though, because the way I think about places of worship is that quite often you probably could socially distance within a place of worship, certainly big churches, if you think about it, it would be, I think, entirely possible to, to socially distance. And I think that although I'm not religious myself, um, the the kind of support they can provide for some people during what is a tough time does mean, I think there's actually quite a strong case to say that that they should be one of the last things to actually close down. Um I mean, George, I just wondered what your thoughts on that are. Do you, do you think there is a case that places of worship should, should close down late on?
0: Um, I, often places of worship, you know, churches and stuff are big enough to provide and ensure that there are the necessary social distancing measures in place. Um, So I, I think that, yeah, maybe if you look at what, Uh, places of worships are doing in in terms of they only often you know run one service every week and i can see why they would be one of the last places to close down um and i think that there is definitely the benefit of doing that but you know i i I think i mean it's hard for me to say because i don't go to church but i i personally think that they are often you know something that are that busy and stuff so i don't think that it would make much of a difference if, if they were one of the last places to close down
1: yeah yeah i get that i get that and i'm just thinking in terms of the the other category of this george i'm just wondering Mm -hmm. whether or not one of the controversies during the initial lockdown was the fact that many people that go to hospitals um that were getting treatment for things that were not um not an emergency and that were not um covid related Uh, a lot of their operations and their, you know, chemotherapy for things like cancer uh, and other kind of treatments were were being just completely um, put off or postponed due to um, the the lockdown measures and to to fighting COVID-19. I mean, obviously, there's a a good scientific basis for that, which is obviously a lot of these people would be amongst the most vulnerable to getting COVID-19. But do, do you think there's a case to say that actually that should be the last thing that closed down kind of what was last time deemed non-essential operations and non-essential treatments. Do you think they should still take place until kind of the end of a future lockdown?
0: Um, I, it really depends what we class as you know, non-essential operations and things. And I, I think that for me, it, bringing outside people into a hospital when it, it is already trying to, to to get around the coronavirus and deal with cases of that. I think we're just putting people in, in a way of cause when we don't necessarily need to. If, if they are operations that can wait and don't actually there isn't a, a vital that they go ahead, then I think it is important that they are put off. And, and even still, I think it was, should be something that is reduced very quickly and very early on. If there was a second lockdown that came about, um, I mean, do you, do you roughly agree with that Callum? Or do you think that it, if there are enough precautions in place, then these operations should still go ahead?
1: Uh, I, again, I mean, I, I, agree with what you're saying in that I think it's kind of a a little bit case dependent Uh, I wouldn't want to see the same situation that we had where uh, almost across the board um, cancer treatment was just completely shelved Um, but I also would obviously want to make sure that people who had to go in for treatment we're going in, and we're very much as protected as much as they can, and that obviously they would have to sign some kind of new um, agreement form, which acknowledges the fact that there's a there's a risk with with um, COVID nineteen around them, and obviously a, a pandemic going on. But but I think with the right measures in place, it should be being looked at um, that actually. What were last time deemed non-essential treatments could still go ahead, providing, of course, that that's not going to overwhelm the wider NHS. I suppose as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what what do you think is going to come out on top here, George? Uh, I want to say schools, but I, I think that
0: um, given the age of our listeners, I don't think <laughs> they would they would agree with it's
1: us. true that too.
0: Yeah. Um, so I'm going to say non-essential shops
1: what about you okay that'd be very interesting if people want that to be the last thing um i think i'm gonna say schools because to me it just seems the most logical places particularly when you consider that young people particularly primary school age are the least kind of in danger of um being severely impacted by the coronavirus um, so I just think it makes logical sense, but but we shall see. But it's the only way to find out, of course, is for you guys to vote away on this question. So that question is, is in any future lockdown, what should be the last thing to close down? You can do that at wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen. And those options again are schools, universities, non-essential shops, pubs slash restaurants, places of worship or other. And we'll be back very soon. Hello and welcome back. So before the break, we ask in any future lockdown, what should be the last thing to close down? And to find out our results to that poll, head over to our Twitter page. That's at WizRadio.
0: Right. Okay. so let's move on to our fourth discussion of this evening. and As always, the most important discussion. And we're asking, will you go abroad in 2020? Um, So maybe stupidly, but this year I decided, um, well, actually about two weeks ago, I decided to book a holiday. With my girlfriend to go to Greece. Um, and given the situation that's currently going on, we are keeping absolutely every single thing crossed to, uh, hope that it's not going to end up on the government's quarantine list. We were supposed to be going to France. Um, but obviously that is now on the uh, quarantine list. And as such, we decided not to go and look to go to Greece instead. Um, and this, this show is pre-recorded. If you haven't already been able to. Tell. um so if we are still be able to go we'll currently be on a flight so uh let's keep our fingers crossed listeners um but the question is with all this coronavirus going about and the quarantine uh list still lingering and and still countries going on it um I think Switzerland if it hasn't already gone on by Sunday will be going on by the end of the week um Callum will you be venturing abroad
1: in 2020? (laughs) chance would be a fine thing wouldn't it Uh, (laughs) no it won't be I mean for me personally I I, even if I was in a position to be able to to do so I'm not sure I would currently as much as I'd love to you know go abroad in in normal times um, I think it's it's just there's a so much uncertainty there um, not just in terms of, you know, that you could go over somewhere and put yourself at risk of obviously uh, getting the virus. But I, I think that more it's just the uncertainty of, and as you've alluded to in your introduction, George, of when you've booked a holiday at the moment, you can't know whether you're going to be going even even sometimes like a day before. You can't know for sure. Well, you can, can know that you'll be going, but you you won't know whether you're gonna be quarantining when you get back. I mean, obviously we do have data which allows us to see that obviously with the example of where you're going, George, I mean it's it's it doesn't appear likely, touch wood, that it yeah, would that's, end that's up on the <laughs> on the quarantine list because the the cases are, are still relatively low at the moment. Um but but even so there's just that uncertainty there and because I'm a bit of a panicker I just don't think I could could deal with that. I mean, obviously, me and you, George, were originally, and uh, a few of our friends were originally meant to be going on holiday to to Greece uh, this year in September, which we postponed back in July, maybe. Um, And um, I'm quite glad that we ended up doing that just because it's taken away that stress. And hopefully, when we go next September, as in 2021, hopefully um we should be seeing things back to normal a a little bit by then in terms of foreign travel um yeah so i mean obviously george i've said i wouldn't go we very much know you you will be going um abroad i mean what was kind of your thoughts behind that in terms of what why you've made that decision
0: i um uh As as it's
1: been said before, I'm
0: uh, a type one diabetic um, and also have um, asthma as well. And I was advised originally when all this was happening to not travel abroad, not going on airplanes and stuff by my consultant. And then as things kind of uh, developed further with that kind of was a bit more lenient and and I was allowed to go to certain places. Um, But I will be honest that um, this during lockdown, uh, I worked my absolute backside off um, and I was very stressed and very um, I don't know it was all very overwhelming and I I kind of (laughs) maybe rightly or wrongly um, I just wanted to get away and I would just want to get away just for a week just to relax and just to be able to have some time off um, because normally I would have already been on two holidays already and none of those have happened um so I just wanted to be able to have some time off in some nice heat um and just enjoy myself and and relax and be able to I don't know be feel a bit more normal again and and not have to worry about work and all the emails that are coming in and stuff and I I feel as if this time period is probably the only time we're going to get away if there is a potential that there is going to be a second lockdown, so I feel like it is now or never um, for this year. So I thought, you know what, you only live once. Let's just book it and, and see see how we go. Um, but I, I, I think that it's as much as um, my health conditions are a concern. I just kind of have the approach that you know what. It's if if I'm going to catch it, I'm going to catch it. Unfortunately, whether I'm in this country or another country, um, and I think that for me, going to Greece is just something that I just have to do to try and recharge my batteries.
1: Hmm, and and just on a, a broader point, in terms of obviously, I think well, it was last week. Now we we saw uh, another um, travel company um, go into administration, STA Travel, which obviously a lot of our listeners may well have. In the future, ended up using because it's very, very popular with people uh, who want to go on um, uh, y- years abroad and, and backpacking. That, that's the word, George. Um, <laughs> d- and uh, obviously, we don't really have time to get properly into this. But are you broadly worried about the future of the travel industry? Because that's not the first um, company that's that's gone bust effectively as a result of this outbreak.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely think that um, we should do this as a topic in future. Um, but yeah. I, I definitely think there is potential that the, the future of the of the the travel industry is under threat, um, and it's definitely a question or not if certain governments in in different countries should get involved. Of to ensure that the travel industry can keep going and businesses like British Airways, Virgin, EasyJet can keep going um, and that people don't become unemployed. I mean, I, I'm guessing you roughly agree there, Callum.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, as you say, I mean, this is definitely worthy of another topic, but I think the travel industry is probably the most critical or critically endangered industry uh, in, in Britain at the moment, for sure. Mm. And how do you think this poll is going to go? I think most people will say no. I'm going to say um, 60% of people. What about you?
0: I'm going to say 80% of people will say no. Um, But there's only one way to find out what that result will be. And that is for all of you to go and vote on this question. Will you go abroad in 2020? And to do that, you can go on wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen. And we'll be back after this break. Hello and welcome back. So before that break, we asked the question, will you go abroad in 2020? And to find out the results of that, please go to our Twitter page, that's at Wiz Radio. Well, unfortunately, it has got to that time in the evening where Callum and I have to say bye bye So thanks for listening to To Be Discussed with Cuff and Go. We do really hope you've enjoyed this episode.
1: So as mentioned earlier, for the first segment of next week's show, We'd like you to send in your questions for George and I to answer. You can send in those questions by email to station at wizardradio.co.uk or through Twitter, that's at wizardradio. So remember to send in your questions for George and I to answer, and we're really, really looking forward to trying to answer those next week. (laughs) It is now time for George and I to say ciao for now. So I've been Callum Gurr.
0: And I've been George Cup. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week at the same time and the same place for another episode of To Be Discussed.